Welcome to the Mark Steri Music Podcast. This podcast is an audio journal of my guests and nice adventures throughout the live and local music biz. Fun conversations, cool tunes, and good times will be had. My name is Mark Steri, and I'm a 15-plus-year veteran of the Twin Cities, Minnesota metro music scene. Check me out at Mark Steri, that's S-T-A-R-Y, music.net. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of my original music is available for download on iTunes, CD Baby, and most other places you get your music online. This podcast drops every Tuesday, if not before, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and most other places podcasts are available. If you enjoy it, please subscribe on iTunes. It's totally free and guarantees you'll never miss an episode. If you've got an extra buck or two you wouldn't mind tossing in the podcast tip jar, please visit patreon.com forward slash Mark Starry Music Podcast. Also, considering helping get the word out on the street via social media, five-star rating and review in iTunes, and or tell a friend or two. Happy Thought of the Day is by Garrison Keeler. You get old and you realize there are no answers, just stories. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the Mark Starry Music Podcast. Enjoy! Welcome back to the Mark Sterry Music Podcast, episode 183. Thanks to all the folks who contribute to this podcast on Patreon.com. Coming at you from my black Jeep this week, again parked in my folks' driveway outside of Turtle Lake, Wisconsin. After the nasty week of snowy weather, it was so nice to spend a beautiful spring day in the country, looking for sheds with copper the Wonder Golden, gathering pussy willows for Easter, grilling, and just stepping back and enjoying the good things in life. Hope you all had a chance to do the same, and if not today, then sometime soon. Last week's Geeks Wrap-Up. Thursday, Scott Wenham, Brian Johnson, and myself braved the spring-winter storm to rock out at B-Dale Club in Roseville, Minnesota. I've wanted to rock out with Scott for years, and he sure did not disappoint. Best Dance Moves Award goes again this month to President Dale. Friday, played a solo show at Nova in Hudson, Wisconsin. Pumped that Terrell is having us jam at the 2019 Nova Beer Cave Festival again this year. Saturday, played a full band show featuring Allie Gray, Brian Johnson, and Brian Ricochet Leger at Eagle Lounge in Balsam Lake, Wisconsin. I'm humbled by all the folks that came out to support the Spring Has Sprung jam. The band played great, but the song of the night is a tie between Allie's Bobby McGee and Jimmy's version of Mustang Sally. Upcoming shows. Wednesday, April 17th, I'll be playing a solo show at Pub 42 in New Hope, Minnesota from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Friday, April 19th, I'll be playing a duo show at Lucky's 13 in Plymouth, Minnesota from 5 to 8 p.m. Saturday, April 20th, Mr. Brian K. Johnson and myself will be rambling on down to Forest Lake, Minnesota to rock out at Vanelli's by the Lake from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. is part three of three with legendary radio talk show host, writer, musician, and founder of the Mishki Roadshow podcast, TD, a.k.a. Tom Mishki. We talk Bob Dylan, Prairie Home Companion, new music, and more. Enjoy the conversation. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Mark Stereo Music Podcast, everybody. We're here again with Tom Mischke at his beautiful home in St. Paul, Minnesota. We've been hanging out here talking about life, talking about podcasting, talking about Tom's career. And here we got a million things in common. It's our love of small town Wisconsin, the Turtle Lake, Amory, St. Croix Falls area and stuff. We're talking about music. And this episode, we're going to focus on some of Tom's music. He's recorded a, a number of records. One, I, this is one of the last CDs you have here. I have this one of Whistle Stop. Whistle Stop was my first. That was my first one. And uh, I brought it out because as we were talking, I realized, oh, that's not on iTunes, which is classic. And who knows why I never did it, why I never put it on there. But I didn't even think that it wasn't on there till right now. So I brought it out just to show you. That was my first one that I did. And uh, I think I've done three. You've done three? I'm working on a fourth one, but the fourth one's really different. I'm having all women sing my songs and all different musicians outside of me do the music. I'm playing the role of producer and the, and I'm the songwriter, but it's a conscious decision to pull myself out of it, focus on the beauty of the song itself, what makes the song, what will make the song the best thing it can be, and sadly, the best thing it can be often means getting me the hell out of there because <laughs> as there are better singers in this world and better musicians. So that's what's happening right now. I'm working on it right now, different women from the Twin Cities singing on it. Okay, for like what's some of the girls that want to sing on it? Molly Mayer sings on it. Sing for yourself because I So who's producing this record? You're the producer. I start, I'm the producer, but I have help. So I started this project with Ryan Young of Trampled by Turtles. But I could tell working with Ryan that he wanted to record it in his place and that he knew what he was doing as an engineer, but he was kind of counting on me to say what I wanted here, what I wanted there. And what I realized was I really needed to lean on someone with a real producer's knack. And I think I was leaning on him a little much, and I didn't know I was going to, but I didn't trust a lot of my own. I know what I like when I hear it, but what I love about the skills of a real producer is when they say... I know what would be good here, and they come up with something you never would have thought of. And you go, yes, that's it. That's perfect. So I ended up switching over, plus Ryan was crazy busy and on tour. We just could never get together. I ended up switching over to Jared Rush, who's another great Twin Cities producer who's building a lovely studio in Amory, Wisconsin. And I'm working with him now. And um, it became a money thing, too. I was running out of money, as it always is with these projects. But I'm really hoping this will be the best one I do. And I mean that by saying, pulling me out of it may be the way to make a song. The best analogy I'll give you is a guy writes a play. Does he demand that he act in the play? No, he gets the best actor he can find. I want the best singer I can find for the song I wrote, just like that uh, screenwriter or... or, um, the guy who wrote the play, and and he says to the person who's acting, no, don't do it this way, do it this way, I like it better this way, and the person doesn't, and that's fine, and I do that with these singers. That's a role I really love, and I really love songwriting. So I'm 
I love playing and singing, but I do that here at home. Do you primarily write on the guitar or piano? Piano. piano. Yeah. Okay. I've been playing piano since I was five. My mother taught me. And she's 95 and still playing piano. And she's in a little place where there's a piano and a bed, a grand piano and a bed. She gets up, goes to the piano, and then goes to bed. That's her life at 95. And, um, yeah, so I write, and I've written a lot of songs. But it's a strange thing to be somebody who hears a song that you wrote in your head and know that you can't deliver it. I have to assume Leonard Cohen had similar experiences. Not like the father or the dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolate and the long stem roll I hear a song. It could be beautiful. I can't make it beautiful. But Jennifer Warren's can. And you get the album Famous Blue Raincoat. And you listen to that and say... These may be the greatest songs I've ever heard. But had Leonard Cohen sang them? I don't think so. And I'm sorry, some people really appreciate Leonard's voice. I don't. But there's nobody who's as equal in songwriting. Okay, so who's some of your favorite piano players? Well, when I was a little kid, when I was growing up, of course, it was Jerry Lee Lewis and that kind of stuff. And I started out playing all the boogie-woogie stuff. And then a lot of the the old blues guys, Memphis Slim. And just, I, I liked I liked that style so much. But... Really, what I what I have come to love musically is that wonderful amalgamation in America. Right now, it's called the America Music, the American Music Triangle. Are you familiar with that term? No. Look it up. It's it's a recent idea, but that there's a triangle in America that you can draw that includes Nashville, includes Memphis, Natchez, Mississippi, Clarksdale, Mississippi, good part of Mississippi, but also gets over a little bit to Muscle Shoals. And it's a tiny chunk of America, tiny chunk of real estate, really, compared to the whole country, where the amalgamation of music from that part of this country that, you know, that gets called, gets thrown into the roots music category, Americana or whatever, that that mixing of the country and the blues and the gospel and, and you know, Appalachian music and and rhythm and blues and what eventually came to be rock and roll, just that wild mix of ingredients, stuff that comes out of that is what I what I have always loved and what I love to this day. And when I write, I have that part of the world always in my head. And my God, I don't know what it is about that triangle. Why there? Why not Montana, northern Arizona, southern Minnesota, Michigan, uh, Maine? You know, what the hell is it about that part? I mean, the amount of music that can be traced back there, I bet damn near everything you do can be, with exceptions, perhaps. I mean, I'm sure there's New York and and Detroit and things, but... And by the way, I don't think New Orleans is in that triangle, which is crazy. Maybe it is. Should be. That's scary if it's not, because Natchez is right next to New Orleans. Must be. Must be New Orleans and Natchez. But just the old American music and all that came from it. You know, Bob Dylan was probably my most listened to guy growing up.
of uh, and he's probably my musical hero. I want to take a minute to tell you about one of my favorite bars in the Roseville slash St. Paul, Minnesota area. The B-Dale Club, located on the corner of County Road B and Dale's motto is a place for family, a place for friends, a place for fun. And that's about right. The food at T-Dog's Cafe and Takeaway is excellent. I had wings this week. Awesome. Rob, Natalie, Shelly, Brandon, and the entire bar staff are all state-of-the-art cocktail wizards. My personal favorite libation at B-Dale Club is the Wood Hill, and those went over like gangbusters at our show last Thursday. Don't miss the 2019 Love Beer, Hate Cancer kickball event on Saturday, May 4th. Karaoke, live music, pool table, pull tabs, bingo nights, bocce ball tournaments, and much, much, much more. B-Dale's got it all. Stop by for a cold one soon. What era in particular? I have a buddy that comes to shows every week, and every Wednesday at Pub 42, he has to play the song uh, Changing of the Guards. So his favorite Dylan era is like that 80s Dylan. Yeah. Where like I like the early folky stuff, and then the blood on the tracks, John Wesley Harding acoustic stuff. So what's your favorite Dylan era? Yeah, I only go, in, in terms of real passion, I only go uh, from his start through Blood on the Tracks, and then I got a cherry pick beyond that. I, not, not whole albums, but songs. I will say that when Daniel Lanois, speaking of producers and New Orleans, intercepts Dylan for Oh Mercy, that album, that shows you what a producer can do. I mean, whether it's T-Bone Burnett or, or a guy like Daniel Lenoir, the stamp that they put on an album, and he brought out of Dylan in that album, Oh Mercy, something that was more like his old greatness. And uh, you gotta you gotta have that, it seems. You gotta have that guy who knows how to pull out of you the best of you. So there are exceptions going beyond Blood on the Tracks, but you know, I'm like, you know, it's it's like so many people, whether it's Joni Mitchell. I'm sure for her, when she moved into jazz later, she said, well, now I'm playing some real music. But, you know, to her audience, it's really because what you did before just knocked my socks off. I love I love that thing about artists, though. They got to keep going. They can't stop. They got to keep going. And they'll leave people behind as they keep going. But they got to keep going. And it's okay to leave people behind. And maybe you'll get new people but i'm never a guy who rides with an artist all the way through they can't keep me their whole career eventually they get into something that i don't know what's going on there what was what was neil young's was it trans was it trans that album he did that i can't remember the name of it you'd probably look it up trans something not transformer anyway there's a time when a guy will lose you <laughs> a guy will yeah. always, you he'll head off somewhere and you'll say see ya I'm back here. I'm a big believer in... I think Dylan was even one of the guys that said that, that it should always be a journey. You should always just be continuing your musical journey throughout your entire life. And I've always admired guys like uh, Leon Russell's. I'm a lifelong Leon Russell fan where he would have a 
rock record, a country record, a jazz record, then some weird record, and back to blues record. And I like the variety and journey yeah. that some of the musicians take. I'll tie that together with Dylan. My all-time favorite version of Hard Rain is Leon Russell's. And there is a piano-driven Hard Rain song that was meant to be a piano song. That's, that's just beautiful. I get goosebumps thinking of the start of that song right now. Me too. I can hear it right here now, too. <laughs> What people have done to Dylan's music, there have to be moments when Bob Dylan hears his song played by somebody who covers it where Dylan says, yeah, that's what I wanted to do, something like that. You know, he used to talk about in the 60s him going for this thin mercury sound that that's such a mysterious cryptic description, but he had this idea in his head of what he was going for, and then he'd say, every now and then I'd get there, I'd get it with this song or I'd get it with that. And I bet there were some things he was going for that he couldn't get at all. He couldn't produce it, but someone else could do it. And it's, yeah, there. That person nailed that song, whether it was Hendrix with uh, All Along the Watchtower. Somebody who makes you just want to retire. Ramblin' Jack got up on stage one time, uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, in in Greenwich Village and did a version of... um, don't think twice, it's all right. And Dylan was in the crowd, and he got up and he just said, I relinquish that to you. That's, that's the way that song was supposed to be played. It's yours. That song is now yours. And I'm trying to do something like that with what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to relinquish my songs to someone who sings it so well, it's no longer mine, it's theirs. I think you're right with the Dylan thing, trying to get, trying to reach his idealistic what sound he was going for. Because I know on the John Wesley Harding record that you just mentioned with the uh, All on the Watchtower, he said that they were he loved Gordon Lightfoot. And he wanted to sound like Gord's Gold or Summertime Dream or something. And he goes on about, oh, yes, we did this acoustic record, you know, John Wesley Harding and whatever. And he goes, yeah, we didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, isn't it crazy when you hear the different people? Like the, people like the end, yeah. Dylan really wanted to be like Gordon Lightfoot. I mean, I can't imagine anything other than Gordon Lightfoot wanting to be Dylan. But uh, Dylan would have these funny stretches. There was a stretch in the 70s where he was really into Neil Diamond. And he really loved... And and the way you can find the era is look for a picture of Dylan with shiny lightning bolts going down his pants on stage. He stole that from Neil Diamond. You know, he was... Dylan's a funny guy because even now when you hear him doing Sinatra stuff, you just wouldn't have predicted it necessarily. Where he moves around and lands with his interests is fascinating to me. And actually, that truly is, when I think of Dylan, what I love. What I love most about him is the life as much, if not more, than the music. So I've read every biography written on him. And his actual life, which you can't say about every musician, is is the greater story than the music starting in Hibbing, just following the trajectory and the way it unfolded and the time in history in which it unfolded. It's, a, it's why there isn't a, a true Dylan biopic yet, and, and I mean in the, in the mold of, walk, is it Walk the Line or what was the Johnny Cash one called? 
I think it was Walk the Line. In that, not the goofy ones they've done where they have five people playing them, but I mean a real one that takes Dylan from Hibbing. I know the biopic will be done after he dies, but his life story trumps them all, in my mind. What it intersects with and, and what you learn about that wonderful period in America that will never be repeated again, I think 1935 to 1975, musically, is, I mean, I remember thinking as a kid, stuff like this would just go on forever, you know, moving in every few years, explosions in music and powerful statements, and someone is going to argue that is going on, Tom, you just don't know about it, but I don't think anything compares with those decades in terms of what what we were going through at lightning speed and how that will stay with us for decades and decades and decades to come. I think that's when all the inventing of all the songwriting and all that stuff all happened. I think it's like I asked my old guitar player one time, uh, Dan Neal, that was, oh, that's going to get to Prayer Home too. Uh, you know, what's music going to sound like 20 years from now? And he goes, I think pretty much the same because we've invented everything already. It's not really how much you can do. It's dangerous to stay, to say stuff like that, but but I think it is true that those those were years when things were swirling and and running into each other, the things that hadn't run into each other before. It's hard for new things to intersect with other things now. The country is it's like we're all connected now, too connected. But back then it was, what's coming down from the hills there, Martha? Good Lord, that's intersecting with this thing coming up from the Delta down there. And what's this church music intersecting with it? And this guy, there's Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, coming out of the church and staring into the window of that little juke joint and all these magical moments. I mean, just magical intersections. You know, Dylan arriving in New York and what was happening. And Hibbing to New York is a trip. You can't make that trip anymore. When hipping guys get to New York, it isn't even surprising anymore. They already know New York. If they've never been there, they know it just from media. Lying in bed at night, Dylan listened to Shreveport Radio. No one has those experiences. Here in music, you can't believe it's being made by these guys you've never heard of and it changing your life. I don't know that it can happen like that, not in that romantic, magical way. And the songs that came out of it, for me... Uh, and it all goes back to kind of that triangle in America and, and what was thrown together there. I'm still feeding off that. So you got to do something really, 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 really interesting that, that a lot of us have, have really always wanted to do. So what was it like when you released this Whistle Stop record in 2004 to get the call from Garrison Keeler to, pr- to play on Prairie Home Companion? Did you know him previously? No. Um, there's a story here that I have not told publicly a lot of people know it privately but if I'm going to be honest um, I can't say I didn't know him in 2000 there was a um, 2001 I think it was 2001 there was a story that came out on my radio show in the Atlantic Monthly James Fallows did something on it and um, in the James Fallows piece he obviously goes to talk to Keeler because he's an Atlantic Monthly guy out of Washington doing a story on a St. Paul radio guy. Well, there's a fairly well-known St. Paul radio guy named Keeler. Maybe it'd be good to talk to him. So he talked to Keeler, and Keeler's quote was, um, I've heard of him. Uh, sounds like an interesting guy, but uh, no, I haven't really checked out the show. And that's, that's the quote in the magazine story. Well, 
Keeler was apparently horribly embarrassed by that because it turns out he did know my show. And I don't know why if he knew my show he, he said that, but he did. So he wrote me a long letter. I remember opening it out on the street in front of this house. I brought it home from the radio station. I hadn't looked at the return address. Pulled up here, looked at the return address. What? Keeler? And his St. Paul address. At the time, he was living on Portland up by Summit. And I open it up, and I read it in the car. And it's this most beautiful letter. I tell you, it's a moment. You know, there's a handful of moments that you remember in life. Mishki, of course I know you. I listen to your show all the time. I love your radio show. And I just thought, why is Fallows interviewing me? I don't, you know, it's, this is supposed to be about you. And so I just kind of shoot him away. But uh, I love your kind of radio, and I'd really like to have you over to the house. And can you come over sometime? Here's my phone number. I called him up, and I went to his house. I'm going to try to make this short. got to his house. He made me lunch. Poured me uh, iced tea. It was summertime. We went out on his porch. And I'm just going to tell you what he said. And the bizarreness of it, you just sit with the same way I did. He wanted me to take over Prairie Home Companion, the whole damn thing. He was done. He was 59 years old. He was done. I can remember every quote he said. When you're done balancing checkbooks at the end of the month, you've lost touch with your audience. Um, there was there was other things that are kind of sad and personal. I think he was struggling with a, a young daughter who was having some issues at two and a half that um, might have had to do with uh, autism or something. And um, I think he was wanting to get out. He was burned out. He was wanting to spend time with family. And he said to me, this is the perfect time for you to take it because I'll tell you something about Minnesota. No one thinks anyone in Minnesota is any good until someone out east tells people in Minnesota, somebody's good. And that's what the Atlantic Monthly just did with you. And now NPR will accept you. Uh, to make a long story short, I told him no for a number of reasons. Uh, I turned it down, and to this day I'm happy I turned it down. I don't regret a minute of it. Uh, there, I could go in. We'd have to do a whole show on the reasons. But so, yes, I knew him because of that. So it wasn't that long after that that I got the call to go on his show and perform songs from, and he picked the songs. He got that CD, heard the music, and he said, will you come do Back to the Water, uh, Cowboys, I think it was Back to the Water, Grandpa, otherwise it's known as Nicholas on that album, and hell, I can't remember, was it? I don't remember the third song. I did three songs. The coolest thing about being on his show, Bill Monroe was on. And I got to sit backstage with Bill Monroe, the great Bill Monroe, and talk about his recent travails with Steve Earle, who had been working with him quite a bit, freaking him out. And that, that was a blast. And... And being on the show with Keeler was fun and playing for that audience, but I was nervous as hell. And oh. I, I had to put together a band for it. Uh, I didn't have a band, and we had to rehearse. We had about three days to rehearse, and I, I sound nervous on that show. And it wasn't in the Fitzgerald. It was on stage at the fair with that big audience out there, so it was even more nerve-wracking. Yeah, it was more nerve-wracking. Instead of it being whatever the Fitzgerald holds, it was several times that. And... uh but I did it. 
you know, and he called me the next day, and this was a little weird. Uh, so he didn't really talk to me that night. I mean, I'm a radio guy. He's a radio guy. We're on his radio show. But he just introduced me to play the music. And uh, the next day he calls me up. He said, yeah, my wife chastised me. She said, why the hell didn't you two just talk? I, I feel really badly. I, I don't know why we didn't. And I remember thinking, why aren't we talking? You know, why am I? I'm not, a, I'm not a music guy. I'm a radio guy who happens to do music. You know, it really wasn't my thing. But. So we didn't really talk on his show, which would have been more fun, I think, just to BS, forget the music. But anyway. Wow. Incredible story. Thank you so much for being on the, the Mark Sterry Music Podcast here, Tom. Is there a song off, off Whistle Stop you'd like me to play at the end of this episode? Yeah. Might have a good story behind it. Thoughts of You. Thoughts of You. What's the story behind that song? Thoughts of You is, is imagining a thought as a living thing. That when you have it, it actually leaves you and it goes places. And the real great thoughts rise, 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 rise. And the, maybe the more mundane thoughts just kind of drift down and, and disappear. But a truly wonderful thought about someone you, you love and a thought that's almost sacred, that, that thought actually goes to heaven. That thought rises and actually goes to heaven. So I'll tell you that that is the song that I really like off there because I like what I did with that idea. I will say that it was interpreted very differently, and I've learned this lesson now after writing songs, how people can interpret songs. A woman wrote me from somewhere in uh, the Southwest, and she plays that song all the time to remind her of her 17-year-old daughter who died in a car accident. So her interpretation of the song is I'm talking to someone who is dead, and the thought is going up to heaven where they live. That was not my intent. I'm very much imagining thoughts as living things that go up, but I'm not talking to a dead person. I'm talking to a woman who at the time I was writing this for, who I'm currently married to. Uh, but wow, when she said, uh, and she was sure that's how I meant it when she wrote me. And I was never going to tell her differently because it was such a sacred song to her for her deceased daughter. Anyway, that's the story of Thoughts of You. Check out the Mishki Roadshow on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. So cool to meet you there, Tom. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. This was great. I had a blast. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of the Mark Sterry Music Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed the program. We'll see you back here for new podcasts about life and times in the live and local music scene each and every Tuesday, if not before, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and most other places podcasts are available. This is a listener-supported podcast, so if you'd like to get on board, please visit patreon.com forward slash Mark Sterry Music Podcast. If you enjoyed some of the musical edits on the show, please head on over to your local record store or do some digging in iTunes and load up on some new songs. Also, if you get a chance, please go check out some live music somewhere. It could be a great and worthwhile experience. Life is short. Go have some fun. Till next time.
Thoughts of you.